On January 24, 2003, 28-year-old Amber Fry reads a prepared statement at a press conference. The paper in her hands shakes as she speaks. <clears throat> Scott told me he was not married. We did have a romantic relationship. I am very sorry for Lacey's family and the pain that this has caused them, and I pray for her safe return. Three days later, Scott Peterson sits down with Diane Sawyer for his first major television interview since his wife Lacey went missing. It's his chance to finally tell his side of the story, to set the record straight and prove to the world that their suspicions are unfounded. Through tears, Scott acknowledges his affair with Amber Fry, but denies having anything to do with his wife's disappearance. He says he wants the murder accusations to stop, not for him, for his wife. He doesn't want the public to lose sight of what's most important, bringing Lacey home. It's a rare display of emotion and vulnerability from Scott, one that may help repair his public image. That is, until he describes Lacey by saying, she was amazing. He fumbles for a moment before correcting himself, she is amazing. But the damage is done. For many Americans, it's as good as a confession. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is the second in a two-part 20-year retrospective on one of the most infamous criminal cases in American history, the murder of Lacey Peterson. And I have some bittersweet news to share. This will also be the final episode of Crimes of Passion. Listeners, it's been such a privilege to share these stories with you all over the years. None of this would have been possible without the passionate support of all of you at home. We've tried to make Crimes of Passion a different kind of true crime show, one that centers real love and loss rather than sensational headlines. So from everyone on the Crimes of Passion team, thanks for listening. Now, let's end on a high note. Last time, Lacey Peterson vanished from Modesto, California while eight months pregnant. The news dominated headlines and galvanized a nation. As authorities investigated, Lacey's husband Scott drew criticism and suspicion for his stoic behavior, which some interpreted as indifference. A month later, another story broke. Scott had been cheating on Lacey. This time, the media firestorm rages on as Scott's behavior spirals out of control, and a murder trial ends in a shocking conclusion. Now, 20 years later, the truth about what really happened to Lacey Peterson is still up for debate. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It's Sunday, April 13th, 2003. 110 days since Lacey Peterson disappeared. 79 days since the American public learned about Scott Peterson's affair with Amber Fry. And 39 days after detectives reclassified Lacey's case as a homicide. A private foundation has offered a $500,000 reward for anyone with information leading to Lacey's safe return. It's helped drum up some leads, but so far, none have been useful. Around 4 p.m. that day, a couple goes for a walk along the shore of the San Francisco Bay in Richmond, California. It's low tide and thanks to a recent storm, there's more debris than usual. Something hidden in a grassy patch of marshland catches their dog's attention. It's not trash or a small animal. It's a decomposing human fetus. Officials are on the scene within minutes. The next morning, more remains are found along the same shoreline about a mile away, this time an adult woman. Authorities can't identify her. She's decayed beyond recognition and missing body parts, including both her forearms and her head. Investigators cordon off huge swaths of land, trying to keep the public at bay, but helicopters swoop in overhead. The headlines are almost instantaneous, Reports speculate that this is it. Lacey and her unborn son, Connor, have finally been found. Law enforcement is more cautious, though, saying it could be a coincidence. It'll be days before DNA tests confirm or deny the suspicions. But less than 24 hours later, a police source leaks a detail to the press. The body was apparently found wearing a maternity bra. 90 miles away in Modesto, the lawn at 523 Covina Avenue is overgrown. Grass creeps up around a makeshift shrine for Lacey. Candles, stuffed animals, and Easter baskets sit beneath a poster advertising the half a million dollar reward. TV crews are parked outside, but the volunteers who once flooded the sidewalks to help Scott Peterson find his wife have bitterly abandoned their posts. Inside his home, Scott hides. As the optics turn from bad to worse, he locks the doors and draws the blinds, refusing to answer calls from Lacey's family. He's turned his son's would-be nursery into a storage space. He now has a goatee and bleached hair that's a blonde orange hue. 
He's ended the lease on his warehouse space, sold Lacey's Range Rover, and redirected all incoming mail to a P.O. box he set up one day before Lacey disappeared. He also recently bought a new car, in all cash, using his mother's name and a fake driver's license number. When he called to cancel his cable, he told his provider that he planned to move overseas. Fearing he might make a run for it, investigators pull warrants to surveil Scott. They use wiretaps and GPS devices to track his movements. He quickly catches on and tries to avoid officials. He swaps cars with family members, disappears into alleyways, runs red lights, makes sudden stops and U-turns. Authorities want to wait for the DNA results before making an arrest, but he's testing their patience. On the morning of April 18th, Scott calls his brother Joe. Scott's in a 1984 dark red Mercedes speeding down the streets of Solana Beach, a city near San Diego. Moments ago, he nearly caused an accident on the freeway. He tells his brother he can't make it to their tea time today. He's being pursued by private investigators. The last thing he needs is a photo of him golfing showing up in the press tomorrow. After hanging up, Scott floors it back onto the freeway. He abruptly cuts off four lanes of traffic to take an off-ramp. He checks to see if the maneuver lost his pursuers, but no luck. Officers are still on his tail. He taunts them, sarcastically applauding their efforts in his rearview mirror. By 11 a.m., authorities are nervous. They're worried Scott might drive 30 minutes south and cross the border into Mexico. So they order his arrest. After an almost three-hour-long chase, the officers turn on their sirens. Scott complies, pulling over to the side of the road. He steps out of the car like a celebrity hiding from the paparazzi. He's wearing sunglasses, tennis shoes, white shorts, and a blue sweater pulled over a white polo shirt. An officer slaps handcuffs on his wrists and asks Scott if he knows why he's being arrested. Scott jokes about his erratic driving before responding, quote, well, Modesto wants me about a murder. Authorities search the Mercedes and find two driver's licenses, Scott's and his brother's, three credit cards, two in Scott's name, one in his sister's, a gas card in his mom's name, sleeping pills, Viagra, four cell phones, almost $15,000 in cash, plus some Mexican currency. They also find enough spare clothes to fill a wardrobe, along with a ton of camping equipment, including fishing gear, rope, a knife, duct tape, scissors, razor blades, and an ax. That afternoon, officials hold a press conference, but believe it or not, Scott's arrest is the second biggest story of the day because the DNA results are in. Countless Americans tune in to hear the Attorney General announce the findings. There is no question in our minds, he says, that the unidentified female is Lacey Peterson. The unidentified fetus is a biological child of Lacey and Scott Peterson. Modesto's DA adds that they intend to charge Scott with murder. Under California law, the murder of a mother that causes the death of an unborn child constitutes double homicide. The arraignment is held three days later on April 21st. Under gray skies and falling rain, Scott and Lacey's families push through a sea of reporters outside the courthouse. It's not an easy task, especially for Scott's mother, Jackie, who relies on supplemental oxygen for her chronic lung disorder. Before the proceedings begin, 
Witnesses watch Jackie hug Lacey's mother. She appears to whisper the words, I'm sorry, into Sharon's ear. Scott enters the courtroom in shackles, wearing a red prison-issue jumpsuit. It's a shock to many. In the past four months, he's been portrayed as a doting husband, a grieving victim, a hero, a liar, a cheat, a playboy, a sex symbol, and now a suspected killer. He pleads not guilty to two counts of capital murder. Although the formality only lasts four minutes, Scott stares straight ahead the whole time, never turning to see the tears in the room. Later, Lacey's family holds a press conference. They've stopped defending Scott since his affair came to light, but even now they're careful not to make specific accusations. Through heaving sobs, Sharon Rocha says she hopes the sound of her daughter's voice, begging for her life and the life of her unborn child, will haunt the killer forever. In two weeks' time, Lacey should be turning 28. Instead of cutting cake, her parents will be burying her. They're gearing up for the next stage of a case that'll see more pre-trial publicity than Charles Manson's and O.J. Simpson's. The stakes couldn't be higher, as state attorneys push descendant Scott with death. The man Sharon and Ron thought would be the father of their grandchildren. So much will change about their lives, but two things will remain constant. First, most of the world will still assume Scott's guilty of murdering his wife. And second, there will be no evidence to indicate where, when, or how. And nothing beyond circumstantial evidence to prove he did. Coming up, Scott's fate hangs in the balance. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On May 2nd, 2003, Scott Peterson lands one of the most notorious high-profile criminal defense lawyers in the country, Mark Garagos. A firebrand and a showman, Garagos has represented clients like Susan McDougall, Winona Ryder, Robert Downey Jr., and Michael Jackson. For months now, he's appeared as a talking head on cable news shows like Larry King Live to weigh in on Lacey's case. He's acknowledged the damning amount of circumstantial evidence against Scott, However, he's also been one of the few who've suggested the media has treated Scott unfairly and that prosecutors don't have enough proof to convict. A few weeks after Scott's arraignment, Garagos agrees to take him on as a client. Initially, Scott was appointed a public defender, but at some point, his parents agreed to foot the Garagos's steep bill, a flat rate fee rumored to be in the seven figures. As one of his first acts, Garagos asks a judge to allow Scott to wear something other than a jumpsuit and handcuffs moving forward. He says, poster-sized pictures of his client labeled as a monster are not conducive to a fair trial. But Scott's tarnished image isn't all that's working against his lawyers. By the time Garagos is representing Scott, there are over 30,000 pages of police reports his team needs to come through. 
a preliminary hearing starts in October 2003. After 11 days, a judge finds probable cause and orders Scott to stand trial. Then in December, Lacey's mother files a wrongful death claim seeking $5 million in damages. It takes time before things get underway though. Lawyers prep for what's sure to be an emotionally charged trial. There are discussions about whether to move the proceedings out of Modesto. Garagos argues that there's no way his client is getting a fair trial in his hometown. The judge agrees. The case gets transferred to another county in California, about 90 miles away. Not that it makes a huge difference. This is the peak of the early 2000s tabloid craze. For a solid year, Scott and Lacey's faces have appeared alongside celebrities like Oprah Winfrey, Britney Spears, and Angelina Jolie. Princess Diana's death recently shocked the world, yet Scott is still right up there alongside the famous royal. People are selling t-shirts of his face that say, Modesto, a killer place to live. As you can imagine, this makes it difficult to find anyone impartial to the case. Even the President of the United States has something to say. On April 1, 2004, George W. Bush enacts a federal law called the Unborn Victims of Violence Act. It states that any person who causes death or injury to a child in the womb shall be charged with a separate offense. Lacey's parents, Sharon and Ron, attend the signing of the bill. President Bush addresses them directly, saying, They have laid to rest their daughter, Lacey. They have also laid to rest that child, a boy named Connor, who was waiting to be born. His little soul never saw light, but he was loved and he is remembered. Applause erupts as he announces the act will be known as Lacey and Connor's Law. The trial kicks off two months later on June 1st and almost immediately the judge removes a jury member. The assumption is it's because of some sort of bias, but the judge rejects the defense's request for mistrials, saying, quote, we have to live with the media. In other words, justice can't be delayed. The only way out is through the firestorm. A record number of 900 journalists from around the world descend on the courthouse. Attorneys have to remind reporters that they're covering a murder trial, not the Super Bowl. Mark Garagos, a man who's used to the spotlight, calls the frenzy unprecedented, and that's just what's happening in the background. During the actual proceedings, lawyers botch basic procedural elements. Expert witnesses admit their testimony relies on hearsay. The prosecution fails to give the defense access to evidence. The defense accuses key witnesses of misconduct, prejudice, and lying on the stand. Chaos erupts often enough that both legal teams have to be reprimanded, like bickering children. The trial causes so much controversy that the judge equates his job to sitting on a powder keg because there's too much to cover everything. We're going to focus on what legal experts later call the turning point. The moment Amber Fry takes a stand. But before we get to her testimony, it's important to have a working knowledge of Amber and Scott's relationship. So let's briefly travel back to the day they met. It's November 20th, 2002, a year and a half before Scott's trial, about a month before Lacey disappears. A mutual friend sets Amber and Scott up. The friend assumes Scott's available because he doesn't wear a ring and because he says he is. Amber is a 27-year-old massage therapist and single mom. 
She lives in Fresno, about 90 minutes away from Scott and Modesto. The distance isn't a deal breaker because Scott visits Fresno fairly regularly for work. For their first date, they meet at a bar. They've only seen each other in photos, but they've talked on the phone. When Scott walks in, he looks like his pictures. He seems nice, funny, attentive. Amber's immediately charmed, enough that she follows him to his hotel room before dinner. Scott pours sparkling wine over strawberries. They sip and talk while he showers and changes out of his work suit. For dinner, he takes Amber to a trendy Japanese restaurant. Scott convinces the Mater D to give them a private room. More wine appears. Over the course of the night, Amber listens as Scott talks about his busy, globe-trotting lifestyle, his journeys through Africa, Ireland, and Spain, all entirely made up. He presents himself as an international businessman just looking for love in the right place. For the holidays, he plans to go to Alaska, then on to Maine, then Paris for work. Before the meal ends, they dance to Frank Sinatra and share their first kiss. They close down the restaurant and share a nightcap of gin and tonics in Scott's hotel room. At some point, they have sex. Scott drives Amber home in the morning and their relationship moves quickly from there. Two weeks later, Scott's meeting her 22-month-old daughter. It feels natural, easy, fun. When they're together, Scott's talking about the future, all the bottles of champagne they'll share together. So by the beginning of December, Amber gives Scott a key to her place, which he says he's honored to have. Amber doesn't have a key to Scott's place, but for the most part, she doesn't question it. She's never in his area anyway. He doesn't have any kids for her to meet. In fact, at some point, Scott tells her he wants a vasectomy and that Amber's daughter is the only child he'll ever need. But on December 9th, Scott sits Amber down for a serious conversation. He has a confession to make. He says he lied to her. He hasn't always been single. He was married, but he lost his wife. This will be his first holiday season without her. Scott doesn't want to discuss specific details and Amber doesn't push for them. Clearly, it's a very emotional subject. Amber has no way of knowing that his wife is still very much alive. In fact, Lacey won't go missing for another two weeks. By the time she disappears, Scott has ready-made excuses for why he's being more distant. He's traveling to Alaska, Maine, France, but he still speaks with Amber on the phone. And at some point, she starts to question whether Scott's being completely honest with her. Maybe she's not the only girl he calls sweetheart and shares hotel rooms with. She certainly doesn't think he's wrapped up in his wife's missing person investigation. That news doesn't come to light until December 29th, when Amber's friend reads an article about a pregnant woman from Modesto who disappeared five days earlier and her husband, Scott Peterson. The next day, Amber calls the Modesto Police Department and learns that Scott's a suspect, a big one. After the shock wears off, Amber says, quote, it wasn't about me anymore. It was about finding Lacey. 
she gives detectives permission to wiretap her phone so they can record her conversations with Scott. Cut to August 2004, when Amber appears in court as a witness for the state. Throughout her testimony, prosecutors play clips of her and Scott's conversations. There's no smoking gun. Scott never confesses to anything, but the tapes offer insight into his character and possible motives. And most importantly, they reveal his willingness to lie. During one call, Scott tells Amber that he's celebrating New Year's Eve at the Eiffel Tower in Paris. He sounds happy, if a little distracted. That's probably because in reality, he's at a candlelight vigil for his missing wife. Prosecutors play another call from early January 2003, when Scott comes clean and finally tells Amber about Lacey. He says he's married and his wife is missing. Scott has no idea that Amber already knows or that the conversation is being recorded. Now that he has less to hide, Scott can reference Lacey freely, but he rarely does. And when his son comes up, he refers to Connor as the baby or her child, like he didn't have or want anything to do with Lacey's pregnancy. By the time Amber's done with her testimony, the tides have shifted in the prosecution's favor, but she's far from the only witness to take the stand. All told, she'll be joined by almost 200 others. Attorneys on both sides enter more than 500 exhibits into evidence. Here are the highlights. The prosecution presents five major pieces of evidence. First, the findings of a canine unit. Four days after Lacey's disappearance, tracking dogs picked up her scent at the Berkeley Marina, where Scott spent the afternoon on the day she went missing. Second, Lacey's hair follicle. During their investigation, detectives found Lacey's hair on some pliers in Scott's boat. Third, recovered planter pots and pieces of cement. Divers discovered planter pots in the San Francisco Bay near where Lacey and Connor's bodies were found. According to the FBI, they matched ones in Scott's warehouse. Investigators also located pieces of cement in Scott's boat cover and in the bed of his truck. Fourth, the blood stains. Spots of Lacey's blood were found on the duvet cover and Scott's blood was on the interior door of his truck. And fifth, Connor's time of death. A medical expert testifies that Connor likely died the day before Lacey was reported missing. The prosecution alleges that Scott killed Lacey, wrapped her body in a tarp, took her out onto his boat and tossed her body into the bay. He used cement and or those planter pots as anchors to weigh her down. Because there were no signs of mutilation, Lacey's missing body parts were most likely eaten by marine animals. To support their version of events, the prosecution brings in an expert on ocean currents. They testified that based on where Lacey's body washed ashore, she was most likely dumped between the Berkeley Marina and a nearby island. In other words, right where Scott went fishing that day. As for the defense, Giragos and his team admit that their client is a liar and a cheat, but they argue reprehensible behavior doesn't make him a murderer. The crux of their case rests on bias. There's an obvious culprit, the media. They've essentially presumed Scott's guilt for months, possibly infringing on his Sixth Amendment rights to a fair trial and an impartial jury. What's more, they accuse the Modesto Police Department of unjustly targeting Scott and ignoring contrary evidence. 
like the witnesses who apparently saw a pregnant woman walking a dog through the neighborhood that morning. If that woman was Lacey, that means Scott would have had an incredibly small window of time to murder his wife and cover it up. Or the fact that Lacey was supposedly wearing expensive jewelry on the morning she disappeared. It turns out a burglary took place that same week on the same street where the Petersons live. According to the defense, detectives didn't really entertain the idea that a third party or parties could have been involved. Garagos's team also cast doubt on the prosecution's evidence, including from the day he was arrested. His family claims he was never trying to flee to Mexico. He was visiting his mother in San Diego. The only reason he had his brother's ID was so he could get a golf discount. The sunglasses and dyed hair, he wanted to blend in. He was tired of getting harassed on the street. As for the $15,000 in cash, that was to reimburse his mom for a banking error. Garagos makes it seem like there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for all of Scott's behavior, including his apparent lack of remorse. Everyone grieves differently, as they say. This is the foundation for the second half of their argument. Bias has created a microscope that makes everything look like damning evidence. But in reality, it's all a series of bizarre coincidences. The trial ends in November 2004. Before a decision is reached, two more jurors are removed and replaced. But eventually, after 11 hours of deliberation, a 12-person jury unanimously finds Scott guilty of murdering Lacey Peterson in the first degree and Connor in the second. By December, they recommend the death penalty. In March, a judge sentences Scott to die by lethal injection. Coming up, 20 years later, will Scott get a retrial? Now, back to the story. In March 2005, a judge sentences Scott Peterson to die. When given time to speak at the sentencing, Lacey's mother says she believes Scott had planned to kill her daughter for weeks. Scott shakes his head no, clearly disagreeing. But Sharon snaps at him. Yes, you did. Tensions run high. Later, Scott's father, Lee Peterson, shouts across the courtroom to call Lacey's brother a liar. Lacey's birth father, Dennis Rocha, tells Scott to burn in hell. Over the next 10 years, Scott and his lawyers file a number of appeals using complaints they've raised before. But they also include new accusations, claiming that the judge presiding over Scott's trial potentially stacked the jury with people more willing to convict. For the most part, these appeals don't find much traction. That all changes in 2015, when news breaks that a jury member may have omitted relevant information on their questionnaire. Juror number seven, a woman named Rochelle Nice. She never disclosed that she'd been a victim of domestic violence and on one occasion filed a restraining order while pregnant. Scott and his lawyers claim that Nice acted as a stealth juror, lying about her past to avoid getting dismissed. Five years later, in August 2020, Scott's death sentence is overturned. The Supreme Court of California decides that the original judge had erroneously dismissed jurors who opposed the death penalty. In a written opinion, they explain that this happened despite the fact that, quote, the jurors gave no indication that their views would prevent them from following the law. Scott's later resentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
As for the question of whether Rochelle Nice unfairly impacted Scott's conviction and whether Scott will get a retrial because of it, attorneys on both sides made their final arguments in August 2022. Scott's lawyers highlight testimony from another jury member who participated in the original trial. Apparently, Rochelle walked into the deliberation room and immediately said something to the effect of, let's get Mr. Peterson for what he did to Little Man, Little Man being the nickname she gave Connor. To make matters even more complicated, Rochelle wrote Scott dozens of prison letters. In some, she urged him to confess to his crimes, in others, she made comments about her past, like how the father of her children cheated on her and made her life hell. This seemed to contradict other answers she'd given on her juror questionnaire years earlier. When asked, do you have any opinions about people involved in extramarital affairs? She responded, no. Rochelle and her lawyers claim her mistakes were innocent. She's just not very good at filling out forms. They said she couldn't have forced herself onto the jury. Initially, she even tried to get dismissed. She said she couldn't participate due to financial problems, but Mark Garagos, Scott's lawyer, made her stay. He physically blocked her from leaving the room. Of course, Scott's attorneys say Garagos would have felt differently if Rochelle had answered her questions honestly. Should the judge rule in Scott's favor, his conviction will be overturned and he'll be granted a new trial. As of this recording, a decision hasn't been made, but the court has until December 2022 to release their opinion. Meaning, by the time this episode airs, there could finally be a period at the end of this case. Or a whole new chapter. In the 20 years since Lacey Peterson first went missing, there hasn't been any significant new evidence. No confession, no murder weapon, no crime scene. But hindsight has offered perspective on other aspects of this investigation that most people don't talk about, like the effects the media spotlight had on a community. According to reports by the ACLU of Northern California, Scott's trial cost Stanislaus County and the city of Modesto at least $3.2 million, most of which went to paying people, five attorneys, seven investigators, and 21 other staff members, some of whom were hired exclusively as media consultants. In total, they devoted more than 20,000 hours to the case, which included an exorbitant amount of overtime. Meanwhile, there was barely enough manpower for all of the other proceedings being handled by the local DA's office. There were 43 in total, with 79 defendants, those cases ended up getting split between just 18 available prosecutors. The death penalty was on the table for eight of them. It's hard to measure the precise impact Scott's trial had on those cases, but in terms of disproportionate treatment, the numbers don't lie. And the media didn't just draw resources away from others who needed it. To make this story seem more controversial, they embrace the myth that homicide investigators can't or shouldn't receive convictions without forensic evidence. That's neither true nor realistic, especially in instances of domestic violence where victims' fingerprints, hair, or DNA are expected to be found in common spaces, in a bedroom, on their partner's clothes, on their truck, or on their boat. Murder convictions can and do happen without a body, and in this situation, there were two. 
a jury found there was a preponderance of evidence to show intent, premeditation, opportunity, and cause. The sad reality is, women are most likely to be killed by their partner or ex. And according to data from the National Center for Health Statistics, those odds are even higher if they're pregnant. Which is to say, the statistics and the facts seem to support the jury's conviction in 2004, even if they don't fully support everything the prosecution laid out. Scott lied a lot, but one thing may be true. Lacey knew he was a cheater. See, Amber wasn't Scott's first affair. She was his third, at least. And another one of Scott's girlfriends once walked in on Lacey and Scott in bed. According to his girlfriends, Scott had a pattern with women. He would play the part of whoever they wanted him to be in person, then carry on however he wanted to behind their backs. When they inevitably caught on, he'd lower the veil and reveal his true nature. A man without remorse, who could turn his emotions on and off like a switch and walk away without ever looking back. So, the prosecution may have gotten it wrong when they suggested Scott killed Lacey to have a life with Amber Fry. His motives might have been more simple. On one of his many phone calls with Amber, Scott referenced On the Road by Jack Kerouac. He told Amber, quote, I never had a prolonged period of freedom like that from responsibility. Now, thanks to his actions, he likely never will. And his victims won't ever get the chance. Thanks again for tuning into the final episode of Crimes of Passion. You'll still be able to find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on the murder of Lacey Peterson, amongst the many sources we used, we found A Deadly Game by Katherine Cryer extremely helpful to our research. Thank you so much for tuning into Crimes of Passion all these years. It has truly meant the world to me and to the team behind the scenes. You have been incredible to work with and thank you for making it the highlight of my career. Don't forget that you can still listen to me on my indie show called True Crime Cases with Lainey, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Brorow. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Connor Sampson, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Haley Milligan, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. I'm your host, Lainey Hobbs. <laughs> <laughs>